Welcome to The Peg Doesn't Fit, the podcast that brings you the change makers in education. Tune in to hear from educational leaders who aren't content with the status quo educational model and are blazing their own path. Welcome to The Peg Doesn't Fit. Today we've got Mark Brown from Headwaters Academy in Ontario, Canada with us today. Mark, how are you doing today? Um, Excellent. It's an excellent day. Glad to uh, be with you. So right before we jumped into this together, you said you were building some cross-country ski trails. Does that mean that it's already snowy up there? (laughs) We had snow. Um, The children have skied for... I would say a week and then it went away. Um, mm-hmm. So it became, you know, puddle jumping time for a bit, but sure. uh, you know, there's always hope it's going to come back. Excellent. Well, that sounds fun. Uh, I, we are in balmy spring-like weather down here in central Kansas. So uh, uh, I love that, but I also wish we'd have snow like for a good chunk of our year and we don't. So I'm kind of jealous. All right, well, let's get started. Um, I like to always ask our guests, our first question is just, how did you get to where you were? Because ed- educators, we love to tell our story. And um, so what has been your educational career path that brought you to being the founder of Headwaters Academy? Well, I'll uh, avoid the boring parts and, and just focus on um, a couple of moments that maybe brought Headwaters Academy to be. And, and the one Excellent. that is the most profound to me um, is as a fourth grader, um, I believe we were learning long division in the algorithm. And, and I asked why something happened. I don't remember what part, obviously, at this point. And the teacher just said to me, she said, get out. And she sent me out of the room. And I was so upset. I, I actually slammed the door. And I remember the door fell off. And, and you know, the janitor was called and <laughs> wow. my parents and, and all of that. But really, it was I just wanted to know. Um, and because she didn't have the ability to tell me, um, she took it as a threat. Um, and from that moment, you know, that was, that was a turning point, you know, school for me became just something to get through, um, mm-hmm. until I could do something better. And, uh, actually in grade eight, eighth grade, they, uh, we have like a, you know, it goes K to eight and then you go to high school and, uh, uh-huh. and my peers said I was most likely to be a teacher and, and I didn't believe it. I said, really? no way, you know, I hate teachers. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, lo and behold, you know, what's that seven, eight years later, I, I'm in what we call teachers college here in, uh, in Ontario, uh-huh. um, following, you know, the traditional path to become a teacher. And I wanted to do an undergraduate thesis, um, on, um, it was actually, it's on coaching and hockey and the teacher's college said, well, no, you can't. You're an educator. You must take these other courses. And I said, well, why can't I do a thesis? I'll take those courses. And um, and I mm-hmm. think that was another little shove to say, you know what? This system doesn't work. Right. Um, if it's Pretty not inflexible. going to allow me. Yeah. If it's not going to allow me to do that, I don't want to be part of it. Um, and I think the last stop on my educational path um, was my master's in the United Kingdom. And the first moment I walked in, um, the professor said, we are the um, faculty of uneducation. Um, He'd been Her Majesty's um, inspector of schools and had been in the papers when he called all the teachers um, uh, incompetent, I believe, is what he called them. But, Uh you know, he was a guy that was willing to question what was going on. 
And from that moment on, I was hooked. I was like, well, I don't know how I managed to end up at this particular master's program, but this is the one for me. Sure. Um, and, and it was great. And where did you say that was? What school? Uh, University of Buckingham. In, University uh, in of Buckingham. Kingdom. Wow. Yeah. I like that. Uneducation. Well, yeah. you're right. This, it was, this it was system really is good. pretty rigid. And so to probably even hear somebody that's in what would be, you know, the entrenched educational establishment, so to speak, to even speak that is kind of cool. And I bet it would be a, a jolt of, yes, maybe we can do something different. What did your master's, like, what did your course content kind of open your eyes to new things when you were in that program that said, hey, there is another way or, or what did you like? Yeah, it, it, was a, it was a beautiful program in the sense, like I, I went to the United Kingdom because I wanted to understand their, their crazy system of you know their department of humanities and, and all the silos that they exist in as subject specialists uh-huh. um and key stage three and key stage four and and all of these you know just just the wild system that is is the uk um but because it was the faculty of uneducation um you know my master's is actually in educational leadership and so the program was write a number of essays about various topics um i remember one of them was was teacher appraisal um, and then come back and debate them. Mm-hmm. And we actually had a group of 30 school heads. I was not a school head at that point. So I was one of two people that wasn't. Um, and, and we got to, you know, debate with their experience and everybody's ideas mattered. And it was a real, I don't know, a Harvard business school type of approach to it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then you went back and you wrote more essays. <laughs> but okay. the, the beauty of that was, was the experience that you got um in listening with to other people right in these massive debates and i mean they, they'd get fiery sometimes sure and being the united kingdom you know what was really cool was you know three o'clock would come around then you know we'd be right up standing almost screaming at each other in a nice way yeah. and they'd say oh time for tea <laughs> and so That's stop funny. and go have tea right <laughs> but um yeah it was it was a, it was an eye-opening program in that sense that um you know we had to blend what is traditional um, with mm-hmm. what is modern, um, sure. and, and to gain off of other people's experience. Well, I like that they, they at least provide the space for that debate because sometimes I think whether you want to call it cancel culture or not, or whatever it is, like there is this, I'm in public education and, and I know that there's this feeling of even saying a word like charter schools. And I don't know what that looks like in Canada, but charter schools are within the public sphere but yet there's almost like this, oh, wait, that's not a purist public education. And then immediately it gets discounted for whatever benefits it may have or, or even private education. Well, we make exceptions when we speak about, you know, like whatever's in that other silo. And uh, I like, I wish we could just have more debate about that, even within amongst ourselves. So um, I appreciate that you're and it sounds like you did too, appreciate that you had that space to debate those things. Well, I want to go like down maybe two paths here. I'm first of all, just fascinated by the model that Headwaters Academy is. And I don't know if I could do it justice, but I'll just say what appealed to me when I first heard about you uh, on on the podcast that I heard you on, um, that Headwaters is small, 
Yes, it's private, but it is small, and, and we can talk about that in more detail. You also uh, do things like run in the morning. Uh, you also let kids guide a lot of what they're learning in terms of like, you know, what they do in class every day. And there just sounds like there's a lot of flexibility, hands-on learning, doing things that are really non-traditional and kind of outside the box of, uh, I guess, what I'd call a content first model with the, you know, the committee of eight in the U.S. at least kind of dictated these back in the 1800s. We need to learn English, math reading, science, whatever, the humanities, and it needs to follow this pattern. Whereas I believe that it's like skills first and let's supplement with those core pieces. And it, it sounds kind of like you do that, like real world skills first, bolstered or supported by the others. So would that, would that be a fair assessment of, I don't know, the model that you have there? <laughs> well, it's funny you use the word model because there wasn't a model. Sure. Um, but when I describe our school, um, it's a combination of the Green School in Bali uh -huh. um, and some of the ideas that they had around, you know, actually the three-phase day um, where there was the instructional component, um, the spiritual component, and the, uh, I forget, like the last one's like the tangible component. I forget their names. Uh -huh. Um also, Coast Mountain Academy in British Columbia um, has a, a program where children are literally out in the wilderness, actually, and, and learning from that. Um, and, and then I would say it's also got pieces of the military academy I spent time in. That's probably where the run came from. Yeah. Um, and just generally what works for children. And I think that's the biggest thing is what works for children if, and what works for any adults and, or human, any, any human being, you know, if we learn something like I, I recently bought an excavator uh -huh. um, and it was completely useless. You know, I, I had no idea how to even get this thing off the ramp when it came. Right. Sure. Um, but we learn these things because there's a reason to learn it. And uh, <laughs> I guess go back to educational philosophy. That's, that's Rousseau you know, yeah. from, I guess, the 18th century, right? Saying, well, uh -huh. you know, a great business is, is made about, you know, the best ways of teaching. The, the best way ever is to make the kid want to learn. Um, and, and that's what we do. That's the model, right? We did small engines at the start of this year mm -hmm. um, because the kids wanted to fix things, but most of all, they wanted to drive things. Uh -huh. um, and in order to do that, we brought in a seized, seized up snowmobile and, mm -hmm. you know, one of our most recent Facebook posts you might have saw was was them driving that snowmobile. Right. And to, you know, to go from a broken down piece of junk that a guy gave to us to something that they were able to drive around the yard and then sell. And I believe they're going to upgrade it now to our next study. They're going to use the money. You know, that has value. And the amount of things that we could tie into fixing that snowmobile you know, as far as combustion, as far as friction, as far as, um, you know, even the budgeting process and, and the writing that they did about it, you know, that mm -hmm. is, is valuable and that engages kids. I love that. So your, your classes are pretty small or your, or your school sounds like it's pretty small, I guess I'll say. And you've, I've heard you talk about a one room schoolhouse model, um, I think. And, and so could you talk about how did you arrive at, at what are your class sizes? How did you arrive at that? What does that look like? 
you know, are there several classrooms at Headwaters? Tell us a little bit about the logistics framework of the school. So class size is one of our huge advantages. Um, I recently put out some advertising that says our kids are two grade levels ahead of their peers in Canada based on a standardized test. It's actually three, um, uh -huh. but I didn't think anybody would believe that. Sure. Um, so I put two. <laughs> um, but the, the reason that they are is in a group of eight kids, um, which is our class size. Okay. Um, and and it, it's malleable, right? There's 16 children in the school. Um, okay. We've been as high as 19 and we will cap at 24. Um, but we're new, you know, we've only been going five years. Um, the reason that, you know, there's that small number is, is if you think about, it was the dinner party analogy, right? We, we, if you think about going to a dinner party, we said, well, how many people can be there before you feel like you might be able to just kind of fade into the background and not mm -hmm. get heard sure. or that you missed talking to somebody. Yeah. And there was no research for class sizes below about 12. Um, and we said 12 is too many. So we just, we literally just threw a dart at the dartboard. It was a significant decision, the financial implications of running a school of that size. And, you know, with that many teachers is massive. Sure. Um, but no kid can hide. No kid is forgotten. Um, and they all, you know, they all get to hear from their teachers multiple times a day. We have an incredible relationship. Um, the one room schoolhouse um, was just a, a fact of life for us because, you know, I'm in a rural area. There aren't that many people, frankly, that can afford um, to come to Headwards Academy. Sure. Half of our students moved from Toronto to attend. Um, mm. Half of them were local. Um, and I didn't know at the time the value that that was going to bring, but the value is, I, I can't overstate it. You know, the, uh -huh. the children help each other naturally you can change your groupings so that, you know, you can have kids that have the same interests together. You can have kids at the same general ability level together and they look out for each other um, sure. in, in a way that we just don't get to see in the traditional system. Like, this is this concept that we should all be with the kids of the same age is, is, is craziness really. Like yeah. in your adult life, you're not with anybody of the same age. Um, and it limits children to, to that level of development, right? Where, or that level of thought. Um, it's, it totally opens up those boundaries when, when you have that one room schoolhouse. Um, the power that I see from even, you know, a, a child helping another one get their cross country skis on um, to, I've got a couple of boys who say that they can't read. Hmm. Um, but give them a younger kid with a storybook and all of a sudden, they're the most theatrical readers that you have in the whole mm. school. Um, and you can you don't want to point that out to them right away. But after four or five times, you say, well, what were you just doing? Well, I was reading. Oh, OK. And then you've changed that child's narrative about himself. Mm -hmm. um, so and, and obviously, like there's value for the older kids. And that's where the older kids learn. Um, and of course, the younger kids just learn naturally because they have the older kids around them right. all the time. Right. So um, what is your age spread? Like. Five yeah, we, we're anywhere this year yeah from six years old to uh, 14 this year six to 14 okay and do your classes so, change like i'm in mrs smith's room or whatever and but there's another classroom do like if if the other class is doing a, a unit that i'm interested in do you do you move the kids around or are they with one group yeah for the year yes absolutely um sometimes they move themselves uh-huh um 
and and oftentimes you know they will give them options um okay you know as to where they should be and and it's amazing we also it reminds me of something else we have no rules so to speak on the playground okay like they the other day they were doing ski jumps you know off of their toboggan uh-huh. ramp um, oh, that's awesome and you know or sliding on the ice but they find their own limit and we've never had an injury to this point um and they do the same thing if you open up the doors to them educationally they find where they should be you know you don't have sure. to tell them um they they go exactly where they should be to keep growing i i maybe want to i guess deviate here on to a little tangent about recess too as like you say that because I think yes for both of those. They'll find where they need to be academically, but also know their limits with, um, you know, what they can do at recess. Even like I'm in a middle school, and I know within our public sphere, we kind of have to put padded boundaries, or we feel like we do around everything. Um, and it kind it kills me, uh, I guess internally within my own. I'll, I guess you could say my morals or my ethics when I have to tell kids quit touching those branches on the trees or don't, don't jump up and grab that pole and see if you can hold on. You know, it's, there were boys the other day that were seeing who could throw a stick the farthest. And I didn't really notice it, but like some other supervisor teachers were like, they can't be throwing sticks. I thought, ah, you know, um, no one got hurt, but, but it feels like we want to be like, Oh, don't, don't do that. So I love that you're letting kids do it in toboggan jumps and, and all that kind of thing. Was that always the case to kids that cut, you have kids that come out of the public se- sector that are, I don't know, tentative at first because their boundaries have been so restrictive or do you not notice that? <laughs> um, when they come to us, I, I think, the biggest change that they, it becomes like real life. You know, this is how they want to live. Um, sure. and, and they feel alive again. I, I wouldn't say that they're tentative. Um, they don't have the skills that our kids do yeah. um, because they haven't been allowed to run and jump. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a boy that just went off the, the jump on, uh, on Friday and, uh, and he landed pretty hard. Um, so I, I sent a text to his father. I said, well, he won the send competition, but not the landing <laughs> competition. Um, cause, and, and, and so, you know, he's down there, he's winded. And, and I went up and I, I ran up and I said, um, I guess I shouldn't say his name, but I said, Bobby, we'll say his name was Bobby. Yeah. I said, Bobby, you know, are you okay? And, and Bobby looked back at me and he couldn't say anything. I said, are you winded? And he nods at me uh-huh. and he's still smiling about it, you sure. know, because he knows he just won the send competition, but this same kid was the kid who, when he came in, um, you know, running was not phenomenal. You know, uh-huh. I, I've got to be careful. I don't, I don't want to say it was horrible, but th- this was a kid who wasn't athletic. I think yeah. even his parents would agree. This was a non-athletic kid who is now sending it off the ski jump on cross country skis, which, you know, makes it even nice. harder. Um, so that transition, that's confidence for him as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, he, he's a wonderfully intelligent boy and wonderfully inquisitive, um, maybe was stuck only in that realm, but now he goes out and plays with, you know, the, the crazy ones, you know, that, that sure. want to send it. Right. And he can do both. He can live in all different worlds. Um, and that I think is a critical thing to, to develop. And it wouldn't have happened if there was rules. 
Yeah. Um, I hate to say it, you know? I'm curious as you're, you're kind of, I'm thinking our, our listeners who will be traditional educators, so to speak, uh, will probably get excited to hear, maybe, get excited to see, hear no rules uh, or less to, to manage in that way, trusting the kids, at least those who are feeling innovative. Um, but also I'm thinking about like, when it comes to the classroom, if kids are driving instruction, how do you, I'm thinking a lot of people are going to wonder, how do you monitor progress um, and know that, you know, we're progressing well, or does it kind of just run itself? Do you, do you have parents asking for report cards on a regular basis or what does that look like? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is a conversation I had with one of our new teachers. Um, there's only three of us, so he knows who he is. James, you're out there, but uh, I had a conversation with James. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it was, he, he's working on building, you know, the, those teaching skills and yeah. his class control was, or is, um, it, it's, it's building, but a little bit weak. Um, and it was funny because he realizes that. And at the same time, I said to him, you need to let go. Right. So it, it seems almost like those two things would be at opposition with each other. How do you let go of the learning and not lose control of the class. But the beautiful thing is when you let go of the learning in terms of being in charge, then the class control comes with it because the kids are now engaged and they're running it themselves sure. and you're standing back. Um, the challenge, like it's really challenging for traditional teachers. Um, all of us, even me, when I started the school um, to some extent, I didn't, I had done it a bit in Bermuda, but to wow. just let go. And, and when you let go, you see where they go and you can ask some leading questions and they want to learn. Yeah. And at that point, if you're stuck in that traditional system, you go back home that night and you say, well, here's what we did today. Mm -hmm. And you prepare for the next day based on the children's questions so that, you know, your curriculum is actually being attended to um, in terms of um, you know, tangible items that we've done. There's these beautiful things called lookbooks that um, my other teacher that's been with us the longest, Katie, um, has taken charge of. And we put the curriculum in there and, and we just get artifacts from the students. And, you know, the children actually build them themselves at this point. It took a lot of training, but they build them themselves. They find the spot in the curriculum that this belongs. And okay. they say, here's where I did that. And so the check boxes are checked. But not because we planned them, but because by actually living in the world, you do come by the vast majority of those expectations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and from multiple grade levels. So like their, their books don't have just grade five stuff in them. If they're a grade five student, I know it's fifth grade in the United States. I, you know, yeah. obviously I've been all over the world now, but, you know, they'll have third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade in that book. There'll be five grade levels of material in that book. Sure. So that we may have been ahead one day and then behind another day in terms mm. of where those things fit. Um, but over a period of time, you not only meet all of the expectations in the curriculum, but you exceed them and, and your children have mastered the important ones. That's awesome. I'm reminded of when we talk about this stuff or when I think of even PD for teachers in a broader sense, like there's a lean manufacturing concept called pull. And it's really just, you only replenish based on the customer's need and only what the customer wants. Um, kind of like they don't really shouldn't pile up a bunch of Pepsi if no one's buying Pepsi or, or whatever that looks like. Um, 
and and so like why do we how well I guess I'll word it positively how awesome when kids are going to reach for the learning they want because then you know what to give them versus you know the traditional model of wasting time piling something on them that they're either not interested in or not ready for um and that's essentially just waste, wasted time, wasted effort, wasted brain space. And so it just sounds magical to let them kind of pull for that learning and trust that they want to learn because kids are intensely curious. Yeah, there's there's a piece there, like the assessment piece then for us, you know, we actually, the other day they're working on their Christmas play. I mean, we're small enough that we're allowed to still have a Christmas play. Sure. Um, and so, you know, Katie's actually grading their Christmas play. Uh And she says, I'll give you a B on that one. And the children said, well, what does that mean? Because Mm. in actual fact, we don't ever use a summative system like that because that's just the end of it, right? It ends, you know, where all of our assessment is a conversation and it's, well, where are you going next? Right. And the only time it ends is if it's been published, you know, to, um, you know, to, to the local paper or, or something like that, or, you know, the, the snowmobile drove out of the shed and now it's sold. So that's finished. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's a natural finish. We didn't grade, you know, how well we fixed the snowmobile. Um, That doesn't make any sense. And it it makes no sense to give a child, you know, a math test back that says 17 out of 20 Mm -hmm. and, and not come back to that because it just goes in the trash. Right. So, you know, it's actually, you know, it's a constant, there's actually no check marks in their books, to be honest, because uh-huh. they'll bring me their math and I'll say, well, this one, this one, and this one need a little bit of a looking at, and, and they go and they look at it and they ask peers and they figure it out. And eventually sometimes they don't, and I do have to tell them, but it gets fixed, right? There's, there's this assessment idea that we're going to grade children. Um, it's so terminal and, and so end of the learning, like it's, it ends the learning right there. Yeah. Um, so, so we don't do that. I think you also, I I guess I'm going to circle back to your class size too, and that your teachers have, because of your class size, have the ability to really know where kids are authentically within those smaller, I guess, micro learnings that they're experiencing as well too. Um, And I think of Dunbar's number, I don't know if you've heard of that, but essentially it's kind of like that for our listeners, if you haven't, the, the mental cap of how many relationships we can maintain Um, And I think the number is somewhat like 200 um, based on our evolutionary ability to manage a tribe size and really know people well and care about them. And and I, I think about how we give, especially in larger schools, we give teachers over a hundred kids to kind of process through their rooms on a given day and yet still expect them to know them, expect teachers to know those kids at the level that they would at your school in a size of eight. And, and I think that's not even possible for our brains to do. And so that we can, I think it's hard for a teacher in this system to, to really get to know kids really well, assess their learning, you know, they're not staying with them all day like they do with you. And and so I, I guess I just reiterate that because I think that is part of the magic of what, what a smaller school can do and, and how you can even just help teachers and help kids um, work together through their learning at much better just by shrinking those class sizes for them. Um, I want to go, I think, is there anything I missed like that 
that you want to talk about with what your school looks like? Because I, I want to transition now to just somebody feels inspired listening to this. They want to go start their own school, do something within their own sphere of influence or whatever. Is there anything that you want to tell um, us about? The only thing that we touched on that I'll, I'll fire out there is that run or ski in the morning. Oh, yeah. You know, nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to go for a run. Well, I have one kid that does. I mean, but that's just, that's different. Um, (laughs) But, you know, most of us wake up thinking, oh man, the run's coming. And literally some of them go to school thinking, oh no, the run's coming. Right. Uh, Um, It's not so bad when it's the ski um, because I mean, there's the downhills, right? There's uphills, but there's downhills. Um, But when it's run time, you know, there's a reason we do that though. And it's so that first thing in the morning, you've attacked something you didn't want to do. Uh-huh. You get the course done and it, different, it, it changes every day. Right. But you get the course done and you've done something to your very best ability. Um, whether that's beating me in the run. I mean, there's one eight year old there that beat me one day and that reminded me of my wow. age. Um, but like I, I go hard because I think it's important that when they do beat me, they beat me, you know, in a, in a serious manner. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's individual progress, there's group progress, and there's just that beautiful feeling that we've done something. Um, and then secondly, you know, for our boys, um, who probably some of them would fit on what public schools, sit, you know, would call the ADD or ADHD spectrum, yeah. you know, that movement in the morning, um, and just that experience, you know, that's why they're going down the hill at, at lunchtime too, in their uh-huh. toboggans, right? They that to settle in and work. And then they do, they settle in and they work um, and they love it. You know, they, they love every part of it, except for maybe the very first few hundred meters of the run. They're, they're not very happy about that. Actually, as you bring this up, I'm thinking health. How do you, what is your, what do your meals look like? Your food there at school? Uh, is it I, locally grown? Meal program? Yeah. Yeah. We, um, kids bring their own, but, uh, we do okay. have a teaching kitchen. Like we have a commercial kitchen. Okay. Um, and we use it extensively in, uh, in our teaching and learning. Awesome. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's always available and, you know, I would say we're in there at least 10 or 12 days a year, uh-huh. um, building up meals that the kids have decided they want to do for one reason or another. That's great. All right. Let's talk about how do we do this ourselves? Cause I would love to start my own school. I don't even know where to begin, really. Um, I mean, I've started to explore it, but you are inspiring in that way to me. But let's just start with just anything. Like some teacher wants to make their own change. What advice would you give them? So when I was trapped in the system, because we all are, Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether you need the paycheck to pay your mortgage or whatever, you know, you have your limitations. And, you know, I was in that in Bermuda, Um, I was brought in to teach grade five, you know, was kind of the concept, but I was supposed to subversively affect change. And, Uh you know, I almost lost my job over it in that first year, but I'll tell you how I didn't. Um, We started doing these wonderful, innovative things, you know, like I remember our first unit was actually on the landfill in Bermuda. Um, We went out and, and we looked at where they're throwing their trash, (laughs) which just seems quite horrible, but um what happened with this is people were, what are you doing? Like, if you're taking that time away from your traditional lessons, how are these children going to learn? Uh-huh. But what I knew was coming was the standardized test. Sure. And that was the moment that the children shown 
And that was the moment that everything was saved. Okay. And the thing is, if you take that risk and you're willing to back it up and make sure that there is learning going on, like we're not going right. to the dump as a field trip to play, yeah. but we are going to absolutely get something out of this. Your test results will then make you a beacon in the school, not just from the kids wanting to be in your class, but the parents are going to request that teacher and the admin's going to say that class is on fire. That is where you start you start by taking that risk um and and know that it's going to work know that stepping back is going to work not right away because the kids aren't used to it um but if you step back and you let them lead you're gonna have to and you're gonna have to change the way that, that you operate as a teacher as well right um and be on that learning journey together um that's how I managed to begin what was a big change process in Bermuda that then continued for the next seven years. Okay. Um, but it was that that very beginning risk and knowing that you know we we do deal in a currency of test results. Uh -huh. So make sure they're there. Sure. Okay. Well, um, you did mention I'm thinking about some uh innovative models. Again, you mentioned a few. Uh, Green School in Bali, Coast Mountain Academy, the Military Academy where you're at. But when, if other people out there are looking for, hey, where, where else can I see some examples to stir my imagination or, or get some ideas? What else is there out there that you would recommend, whether it's books, school leaders, whatever? Okay. The most approachable um, in terms of books is John Holt, um, How Children Fail and How Children Learn. Um, he is now dead, um, unfortunately, okay. but, um, these were written in the, I believe seventies, um, and they're still available online and, you know, his writings actually, he said, he said, pull kids out of school, um, okay. but sure. his writings came from when he was a teacher. Uh -huh. Um, and, and they're really phenomenal, I guess, phenomenal stuff. I won't go into any more detail. John Taylor Gatto, um, weapons of mass instruction was the first one I read. Um, I believe there's one other one. I forget. I forget what it's called, but um, he was actually a state award-winning teacher in New York. I believe he won like top teacher of the year. And then that uh -huh. same year he quit because he said, I'm tired of hurting children. Sure. Um, if you read his works, they'll be inspiring. Um, okay. And the third one that I have is Alan November. Um, I agree with him to some extent, you know, he's all about bringing technology into the classroom, which we don't do a ton of. Um, uh -huh. I think they get enough of that at home, but right. What he did say is who owns the learning, right? And Alan November's got a great number of talks about that. Who owns the learning in your classroom? Like if you are working harder than the children, you've got a problem. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, that's really, that's kind of, I, I maybe don't even have to listen to him, but he, he does a much better job than I do on asking that question. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I will list those in our show notes, some of those books, and, and also this Alan November, I've not heard of him. Well, how can we get, are you willing to uh, let people get in touch with you? Um, are there, what are the social media outlets for Headwaters? What can you share for people that want to see what's happening at Headwaters? Um, so we're at headwatersacademy.ca. Um, there's also a Headwaters Academy in Montana. That's not ah. us. Um, we're the one in Canada. So .ca. Um, you can email um, from the contact there. It will find its way to me. Sure. Um, also, our Facebook is uh, backslash Headwaters Academy. 
We have Instagram at academy.headwaters. And frankly, that's just because I screwed up and forgot the password to headwaters.academy. So anyways, <laughs> it's academy.headwaters okay. now. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a daily, oh, not a daily taste. I would say every few days, I have a parent volunteer that's uh, putting that together. We'll send her photos of what's happening. Um, it gives you a little splash, a little taste. The Facebook ones tend to have more blogging from me. Um, uh-huh. and Instagram tends to be the, the smaller pieces. And obviously there's obviously therefore more frequent out of, um, out of Instagram than it is from me. Sure. But, uh, those, those are the ways to kind of connect with us. All right. Well, thank you. And I hope, I really appreciate that you have come on here. I hope the rest of your year treats you well. And thanks again for being on The Peg Doesn't Fit. All right. Well, thank you. And, and I hope that uh, a little bit of inspiration to do what's best for kids. Um, like that's really what guides me. And, and I hope that we're all, um, I'm sure if people are listening to this, they're those type of educators anyways. Excellent. There you have it, folks. What a great episode with Mark Brown of Headwaters Academy. That was inspirational. I heard him on a different podcast a while back and thought, I've got to have this guy on our show. And so it was a pleasure to have you today, Mark. And for those listening, I will put in the show notes the books Mark referenced. I will put in the Facebook uh, location, Instagram, if you want to follow Headwaters Academy. I'll put in his contact information as well as the uh, website, which also has a way to contact him. I know that he is very good at getting back with you very quickly. Uh, That's what I experienced, even though it's one of those website automated forms. Just type in your info and your question, and he will respond pretty quickly to that. So uh, I hope you guys walk away inspired from this one. And next week, TBD, we will see, but I think we're going to jump back into some blockchain talk and explore some more about that and how it can impact education. Once again, also, if you ever have some ideas for things you want to learn about or somebody you would love to hear on the show, just drop either a message into the Peg Doesn't Fit or I'm Ryan D. Bartle 1. Reach out and let us know either your th- or let me know your thoughts or in terms of what you like, what you'd like to hear more of, or tip us off to a great guest and and I'd much appreciate it. I'm always looking to learn. It's what I appreciate most about this podcast is the opportunities I have to get to know different educators that are making huge changes out there. And uh, I hope you do too. So we'll see you next time on The Big Doesn't Fit.